Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. It's Alden, the producer of Shut Up, Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home, stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. On today's show, singer-songwriter Jake Shears, former frontman of the American pop rock band The Scissor Sisters and solo artist whose latest single, Meltdown, dropped in February. Shears talks about his decade-plus with The Scissor Sisters. If that song hadn't have been as successful as it was, I think maybe we might still be together. But I really felt like we'd sort of, I didn't know, I didn't know what else to say through the lens of that band. Reflections on his past. I look back at my 2004 self and I was so full of myself. <laughs> I was so absolutely, completely just full of it. Would say whatever the fuck I wanted. Was kind of like a total dictator. I was bossy. Over time, I really had to kind of like deal with that. And being an out musician at a time when many of his peers were still in the closet. I felt like if you were going to be a performer, if you were going to do this, if you're going to be out there, if this is what you're deciding to do with your life, then you have the responsibility to be out and be visible for all the people growing up and to change, to, to make some kind of a change. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Roskatz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined, as you probably know by now, once again, by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How are we? I'm good. Excited for episode 16 with Jake Shears. Very exciting. Um, How's your week going? You know, this question stumps me every time, Evan, because there's truly no difference week to week um, from how my life is going. Just still working from home. Um, staying socially distanced and isolated in quarantine, the usual. No raves? No raves, no raves. Almost done watching Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, I meant to tell you, I am on episode eight of Avatar The Last Airbender. It's, I watched the first two seasons so quickly and I've been watching the third one a lot slower because it's gonna be over soon. It's so much better and exciting than I expected. It is my first venture into this genre. Um, it's probably the first animated thing I've watched since I was a kid. Um, oh. And I'm really definitely enjoying it. My boyfriend and I decided since we're he's doing the Buffy journey from the beginning, mm -hmm. it kind of became a, okay, we're doing your thing. We should do my thing as well. And so we are alternating. Oh, he recommended Avatar? Yeah, it's his favorite Good show. taste, good taste. Also, you have it a lot easier because you have three seasons of 20-minute episodes and he has seven seasons of 22 yes. 45-minute episodes. Oh, my gosh. My joy. Uh, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really definitely enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. It's very witty. It is very witty. Um, and I definitely, I've enjoyed the complexity. I was imagining more of a children's show and it definitely thematically Same. is uh, a little adult. Mm -hmm. And I'm an adult. Um, speaking of adults... <laughs> It's not a good transition. I do love, I want to say, I love a podcast transition. I love like the art form of that. Mm -hmm. um, but speaking of not good transitions, I'm going to make right now. Um, <laughs> today, because we have, uh, you know, pop star Jake Shears on the show, I wanted to talk about pop music because there was mm -hmm. something akin to a pop music emergency that took place recently. So Lady Gaga's Rain On Me, the second single from her highly anticipated sixth studio album, Chromatica, uh -huh. debuted on Friday, May 22nd to much fanfare from her army 
army of stands, um, myself among them. And I wanted to read a little bit of some of the reviews that I was seeing online to mm-hmm. sort of get at a kind of larger point that I'm sort of still forming right now because the song is so recent. I try not to form too strong of an opinion too early on, especially when it comes to something like this, which has so many elements to it, right? There's like the written song, the performance of the song, the idea yeah. of these two pop titans joining forces, the visuals of the of the video, which um, you mentioned that it was directed yeah, by- Yeah, it's directed by Robert Rodriguez, who you might know from the Sin City movies, the Spy Kid movies, um, the Grindhouse double feature with Quentin Tarantino. He directed Planet Terror. And Rose McGowan. And Rose McGowan. Um, and then Machete, Machete Kills, and soon, uh, Machete Kills in Space. Thank God, because you know what? I kept thinking, the whole time I was watching Machete Kills, I kept being like, okay, but why is this not in space? So I'm glad they're <laughs> answering that question. So anyway, so some Machete. of these reviews. Um, so first up is Vulture's Craig Jenkins, and he wrote, this song will be huge, not just because it's Gaga in peak dance pop form with chart assassin Ariana Grande in tow, the two of them singing it down, and because the beat by Blood Pop and Burns bangs like the bathroom at a circuit party in the freewheeling aughts, but because it has the nebulous quality memorable pop songs have, where the lyrics seem distinct about one thing, but also not about anything in particular. Okay, so that's one. So then we have Pitchfork's Quinn Moreland in a review that's two paragraphs in length. I'm going to read one of those two paragraphs. Mm-hmm. I never asked for the rainfall. At least I showed up. You showed me nothing at all. Gaga proclaims at the song's beginning with a bravada that would make Ali Main shake. It's coming down on me, water like misery. Over a club-ready rush of the early 90s house pop courtesy of Blood Pop, Boys Noise, Burns, and Chami, Gaga and Grande proclaim that it's okay to cry, to stumble, to fall apart. These are necessary parts of survival. Quote, gotta live my truth, not keep it bottled in so I don't lose my mind, Grande murmurs. Sure, they'd both rather be dry, but for the moment, it's okay to celebrate simply being alive. Then we have uh, the third and final one I want to re- uh, read. Rolling Stone's Claire Schaefer wrote 10 sentences total for her review, which is more of a video recap than a review at all. She mm-hmm. writes, The visual, directed by Spy Kids auteur Robert Rodriguez, follows the same cyberpunk anime aesthetic that Gaga has presented for the Chromatica album cycle. Dressed in pink, the pop star leads a troop of dancers inside of a giant arena, with Ariana's pink-hued squad on the flip side of the video. There's also some dramatic close-ups of Gaga with rain pouring down her face, and at one point, she and Ari are shown holding hands each with lengthy Sailor Moon hair floating in the wind behind them. Okay, so I love Gaga, duh. Um, But I am perplexed by the lack of critical analysis of this song, especially from prestigious publications like Pitchfork and like Rolling Stone. Um, I texted former Shut Up Evan guest Rich Juzwiak for his thoughts uh, after the release, and he said, quote, at this point I should be prepared to be underwhelmed when I wake up and see gay after gay vomiting praise on Twitter. (laughs) I don't have strong feelings for or against Rain On Me. It's not a song I want to marinate on the way I did with a song like Bad Romance. So then I was like thinking about it this morning and I was like, okay, well, what do I love so much about Bad Romance? Like, why is it such a song that I not not only like to listen to, but like to think about? And so my research led me to this 2014 slate analysis of the song by writer Owen Pallett. Uh, bear with me here. And, mm-hmm. and he writes, about that hook, Gaga has till now never used a raised seventh, which is unusual for someone who writes exclusively in minor keys. Now she does. In this chorus, there is a changing accidental. The seventh note of the A minor scale appears both as a G natural and as a G sharp. Now this raised seventh does something that would make Tchaikovsky proud. The melody appears twice per chorus, but over two distinctly different chord progressions. The first time bat appears as G natural, leaping down a fourth to romance. The second time, Bat appears as a G-sharp, leaping down a tritone. The G-sharp wants to go upward. It wants to rise to the A, resolving the cadence as a music school freshman would have done. But Gaga goes down, leaving the bad leading note hanging. Why? Because she herself is bad, further accentuating the badness of that bad. The interval, the tritone is historically linked to sexual desire and the devil. Whether or not Lady Gaga is familiar with the specifics of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony is irrelevant. She has scored a textbook-worthy usage of Western music theory's favorite signifier for evildoing. Holy shit. I have no idea what that means. Me neither. Uh, But I know it's something. I know there's something there, and I follow uh, 30% of it enough to know that that is a a paragraph I want to read over and over again about a song I want to listen to over and over again. And I think that sort of underscores uh, 
quite, quite beautifully the complexity of bad romance. And, and again, it's like, you know, I don't see anal- any analysis of Rain on Me even coming close to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the references that that are being drawn on in those reviews we just read, like Sailor Moon, for instance, are so obvious. Um, and referencing, you know, dance pop of the early aughts. And uh, yeah, there's just nothing that's really being said. Um, so I'm not a music analyst, so maybe someone could come forth and write a similar piece in the years to come about the musical genius of Rain On Me, but even looking at the lack of thought in the reviews that rolled out was very telling about this song's lack of substantive engagement. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm at with it. I'm questioning how achieving the fame that she sang about so abstractly early in her career has impacted her creative process and creative output. And I do want to say, it's like, I have Stanish tendencies in me when it comes to Gaga, and I get super excited about her. And so it's not to say, I'm not coming this coming at this from a place of, I'm above it, and I don't want this to appear as though I, I don't like the song, and I'm, I'm pissing all over anyone that loves it, because I love to love Gaga, and I love to witness oh, the sure. culture of people that love Gaga, but this just, it, it didn't kind of swing out of the park as I'm so desire for Gaga. The fact that we're having this much of a conversation about the song and the music video says so much already about um, how iconic she is. It does, but you know, as you point out, it's like this substantive of a conversation, I am desiring to see that or hear that or read that about this song and this video. And I'm perplexed to see these outlets like Pitchfork and Rolling Stone. And and these are all the reviews. I really, I read them all this morning. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking for something that sort of breaks down the song and sort of, you know, I, I guess I want to go back real quick. And, and again, that Pitchfork review where he says, uh, Sure, they'd rather be dry, but for the moment, it's okay to celebrate simply being alive. And it's just like, huh? Like, I I, I expect <laughs> just something a little bit deeper, if not from the song, than those reviewing it. And so I guess I am disappointed in the lack of conversation around this song. Even sure. if it's uh, t- skews towards the negative, I just wish that there was more to chew on here, you know? Um, it's like I'm having this meal and I just... I'm left hungry at the end. Um, So now I want to take us from one pop star to another. On today's show, we have singer-songwriter and all-time good human, Jake Mm -hmm. Shears, and we get into some um, interesting conversations about fame. So without any further ado, let's turn things over to our interview with Jake Shears. a singer, songwriter, performer, and author who began his career in 2000 working as a music reviewer for Paper Magazine. Shortly thereafter, he, Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman, and Anna Lynch, aka Animatronic, formed the Scissor Sisters. The band began as a performance art stunt playing outrageous shows in clubs like Lux, the heart of the electro-clash scene in Williamsburg, before achieving a breakthrough success with their falsetto tribute to Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. From there, the hits didn't stop coming. Their self-titled debut studio album became the biggest selling album of the year in the UK. In July 2006, it was named by Attitude as the top gay album of all time. The band went on hiatus after the success of their 2012 single, Let's Have a Kiki. Since then, he has authored a memoir, Boys Keep Swinging, made his Broadway debut in Kinky Boots, and released a self-titled solo album in 2018. Most recently, he appeared on The Masked Singer UK and is currently co-writing a new musical, Tammy Faye, with his good friend, Elton John. He is charismatic, provocative, he's sexy, unfiltered, loyal, heartfelt. He is my friend, the legend himself, the very first rock star to guest on this pod, Jake Shears. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, Evan. I want to start our interview off uh, with a memory. Yes. So I was in Eddie Black's apartment in Bushwick. It's the summer of 2012. And he had somehow gotten a copy of Let's Have a Kiki before the song was formally released. Mm. And this was like one of my 
a very formative summer for me in terms of meeting my tribe. Mm. And I remember we listened to the song a couple of times before we went out that night. We go out, obviously we're not hearing it in the club because it wasn't out yet. We come back for the after hours at Eddie's and we just have this song on repeat. And there's like this euphoria that's felt by all of us in hearing that song and feeling so spoken to. So can you give me a little bit of the origin story of Let's Have a Kiki? Of Let's Have a Kiki, which might end up on my tombstone. There was this track that Anna had loved for a long time called Let's Have an Acid Party that sampled Margaret Thatcher and chopped her voice up to be saying all this stuff over this like acid track (laughs) like chopped her voice you know talking about like let's do acid i want to have an acid party (laughs) and like so for the chorus of let's have a kiki i put all those lines and sampled them onto a keyboard so i could play a d and it would say one of those lines like lock the doors i had tight on another one lock the doors So I had all these lines that were lined up in each key of the keyboard. So the chorus was formed out of just pressing the keys and hearing what came up next and piecing it together. We just had all these lines that we were just like playing and found the right combination that sounded cool. So we had this this chorus that we loved and we tried a couple different things. We tried like a first verse that was kind of like the second with Anna. And then we decided to do this phone message and we had her in the next room call us in the studio and like just had the phone up to the mic and most of that all is just a freestyle of hers Brilliant. She's just brilliant on it. And all those little things I still think of. And people say drowned, harassed rat and just the story. And we were having so much fun with it. This is something that's not really known. And I hope it doesn't necessarily get me in trouble. I realized that the base of the song is sampled from Enrico Morricone's score from John Carpenter's The Thing, which is my favorite monster movie of all time. So that like, that everything breaks down and the breakdown is the opening of The Thing, which I still am really proud of. As you know, Sarah Jessica Parker famously did a cover of the song on Glee. (laughs) I know that you were friends with Chris Colfer and he sort of introduces that song into the world of Glee. There's something deeply chaotic good about Sarah Jessica Parker performing the monologue in particular. Yes. Because it's just like these fusion of two worlds that are both incredibly queer, but like don't exist together. (laughs) No. Hello? Hey, I'm calling you back. Oh, she's been a bitch tonight. And by bitch, I mean this rain. No cabs, nowhere. So what was that like for you hearing SJP reinterpret Let's Have a Kiki? It made my brain melt. (laughs) Like when she came out of the subway, I was just, it was one of those moments in my life where I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is really insane. Like it was really weird. (laughs) It was really weird. It just felt like, you know, I don't know if you're a Stephen King fan, but like I'm a massive Stephen King fan and the Dark Tower. And it's, you know, it's basically a multiverse. It's all these like parallel universes on top of each other. It felt like, yeah, it felt like the multiverse. It felt like some weird sort of cross laser beam shot a certain way in this moment of time. And then just the fact that it was crossed with Turkey Darkey time was so strange. So shave that lid and we'll all bid adieu to your ennui. Let's have a kiki. I want to have a kiki. Lock the doors. Tight. Let's have a kiki. Mother. I'm going to let you have it. Let's have a kiki. I want to have a kiki. Die. Turn. Work. Let's have a kiki. We're going to serve. And work. And turn. Ha ha honey. It's turkey lurkey time. Tom Turkey ran away but he just came home. It's turkey lurkey time. 
There's a terrific moment, I implore you to revisit it, in the video when Leah Michelle transitions to Turkey Lurkey time and SJP gives this glance. It's like two seconds on camera, but just like, wait, bitch, what? And it's such a great <laughs> moment of just exactly what you're feeling as a viewer thinking, okay, I love both of these songs, but my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I think Brain Explosion is the best way to interpret it. Brain melting. It was actually one of my favorite moments I think I've ever had in my career, just because it was just really fun to see, especially in America, to see something break through like that. And just that song itself, like, you know, when we are making that album, it was always just a really fun song that we liked and that we were really into. And it just kind of like gained its own life. And to have something sort of break into the culture like that, I was so happy about it. I was so excited. We were really excited as a band. And I really do, I feel like it just kind of finished, finished Scissor Sisters off in a way. I felt like it was a great bookend. There's something about it. And if that song hadn't have been as successful as it was, I think maybe we might still be together. But I really felt like we'd sort of, I didn't know, I didn't know what else to say. I didn't know what else to say through the lens of that band. And you ended on a high note by having this song that became such a crossover hit. I feel like that. Yeah, I'm still going to go on and on. I'm still going to make records and, and songs. And maybe someday Scissor Sisters will, you know, if there's inspiration for it or an idea behind it i will not be opposed uh for us making another album as a fan it's very gratifying to hear that response and know that i understand this idea of like it is done for the moment or it's, mm. it's done and that there could be a time when who knows what's going to happen literally look at what's going on in the world right now we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold yeah. so i appreciate that response the record would have to be phenomenal i would never put out another scissors record that like was anything less than incredible. So now let's back it up. Uh, I want to read for you the first sentence of your early life section on Wikipedia because it's a real gag. It says, Shears was born in Mesa, Arizona, the son of an entrepreneur father and a Baptist mother. He grew up on San Juan Island, Washington, where he attended school at Friday Harbor High School and was bullied. That's the sentence. <laughs> okay. And it's just such a, oh, okay. Uh, can you add some color to that description? Yeah, so it was Arizona. I was born in Arizona. My dad retired. We moved up to a little island in the Northwest, and I grew up on this very beautiful, isolated island with whales, you know, orca whales in our front yard. And it was just the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place, and still is a really beautiful place. There was about 3,000 people there year-round, a lot of hippies which was cool. My best friends growing up, their names were, one was Ryan, and then the other two were Zareth and Jupiter. So, you know, there was like a lot of kind of like alternative living <laughs> happening on the island. It was an amazing place to grow up. Once I got into high school there, my freshman year of high school, I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, this is just not. The island itself, I fantasize about and I still think about it. My parents left the island about 20 years ago. And sort of when Microsoft exploded, the island got discovered by all the CEOs. And it's just a vastly, vastly, vastly different place than it was. You have a very interesting and unique coming out story. This was in 90... I'm 42 now. This was in, I came out in 93. I ended up moving, my art teacher became my legal guardian. I had an art teacher back in Arizona that I was friends with. It was friends with my mom. So I left the island for my sophomore year of high school and moved in with her. And she became my legal guardian. And I was like, fuck this, I'm coming out. But I came out at school and I was going to this giant public school. There was like 3,000 kids at the school. It was like the same amount of people that were in my hometown I had just left. And, you know, it was very conservative. I totally bit off way more than I could chew, but was like aggressively egging on people in a way. Like I was coming to school dressed like, like a wild man like I was just I was wearing skirts and ratting my hair and just being very visible and I was the only 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 kid eventually there's a really sweet boy that pulled me aside one day and showed me his freedom rings out of his pocket but he was in the closet at school which I'll never forget which was really like a special moment to know that there was one other person there but it was funny remember freedom rings yeah of course i didn't realize at the time but i'm like super allergic to whatever ch chain that they come on and 
I started wearing them at school and I was so proud of them. I was like, all I wanted, I just wanted to wear nothing but freedom rings all the time. For listeners that may not know, they were like rainbow rings that you'd wear on a chain around your neck or around any part of your body that basically was like a visibility sign to other LGBTQ people that, you know, it was a family symbol so you could be visible. But the chain just started eating into my neck. I didn't like, I didn't realized I was allergic to them. It was the grossest thing. The whole back of my neck eventually, and I, because I, I didn't want to stop wearing them. Like it ate through the, <laughs> the back of my neck and was like this raw meat blistering. It was so disgusting. Once I figured it out and I was like, oh, I really can't wear these anymore. It took a long time for it to heal. And still to this day, I find it a really interesting metaphor. <laughs> I was going to say, there, there's something there, right? Like this, this, this attempt at visibility in your own body telling you, no, 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 don't do it. When I think back to that time, I don't think I would have done it the same way. I, I don't think I would have done it the same way. I put myself through a lot of fear and... It was just so scary. And every day was, I was hiding in places at school. And like, I had a biology teacher that would like help me out sometimes. I remember one day she found me, there was like a spot I could hide between a filing cabinet and the wall in her office after class. So like, people knew that I was in that class and wouldn't see me coming out. And it's just stuff like that. It was just like, it's so wild to think about. And yeah, I think things, sure, things have changed and there's more visibility, but I just, you know, I'm in Bristol, Virginia right now and there's a high school right down the street and my boyfriend and I were walking by the other day, you know, it's closed and he said, God, that looks like a place where a lot of kids probably get bullied. <laughs> and I think that we can still really forget that kids are still going through this in a major way. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I feel like bullying became a much more pervasive conversation in like the public, but I'm not sure that that conversation has done much to actually mitigate bullying because a lot of that conversation is being had by adults and forgetting the fact that no matter how much we talk about it and try and tell people not to bully, the more you tell people not to do something, especially when it comes to bullying, the more they're going to want to do it. Yes. Yeah, no, it's true. And the more it seems like an exciting, appealing thing to do, like eating Tide Pods. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think back to that time and I do think about a lot of the female allies I had, a lot of the girls that did have my back in certain moments. And I feel like even though it, I'm sure it's still pervasive, I really like to think that there are more people that are aware of it and there are more people that don't let it just happen. And there are more people that do do their best to shut it down and step in and not leave people alone. Like I have that hope. And I think that there must be, there must be a greater number of kids that are just like not having it. So at 19, you moved to a very different New York City than the New York City of today. And I don't mean pandemic aside, a very different New York. Mm. And when you moved here, there were very strict cabaret laws in effect that made places very strict about dancing. Mm. And for people listening that don't know about these cabaret laws, it just seems like it must have been 200, 300 years ago, but it wasn't. It was actually not too distant ago in which there were laws prohibiting people from dancing. Can you sort of explain what that was? Giuliani put it into effect. You had to have a cabaret license. And the definition was like for people to be moving in motion with music. And if you didn't have a license for that, you could get shut down if people were caught dancing. So you would be in bars and there were giant signs. I mean, at the original cock, there eventually was like a giant sign that said no dancing. And you would be in places and like, if you were swaying to the beat, if you were enjoying, you would be told sometimes to stop dancing or to stop moving to the music. You know, I loved New York at that time. It was an exciting time to be there. There was a ton going on and it really formed me, but my God. That was just like, it, that was the worst. That was the worst. I mean, Giuliani was, I mean, I love that now we can really look at him and understand like what a psychopath, what a psycho he is, <laughs> you know? It's really become public. He's the New York housewives of 
of city mayors turned presidential lawyers. Like he's just, it's so naked and scary. Yeah, there is something, gratifying might be a strange word, but in seeing people finally come to understand, because he really got this hero narrative post-September 11th. And it's, again, not nice to see this happen, but it's, it just... Yeah, it feels good to finally have people waking up to this monster. It brings it to light. It really does bring it to light that you're just like, okay, we weren't being gaslighted. We weren't being crazy. This person is truly evil. Let's take a quick break. And we're back with Jake Shears. So you have a love-hate relationship with the Roxy. And I'm very fascinated by club culture of the late 90s and early 2000s. Mm. Can you first explain what the Roxy was and then perhaps recount a memorable night you had there? Roxy was was a big, I think, it, you know, they did have like roller skating nights in there. It was this big club and it was like the main gay club in Manhattan. I mean, there was Twilo and the Tunnel and, but it was sort of like the gay, gay club. It was vast. It was the main spot. And like, I kind of hated it for it. Like, I think since I was, you know, around 20 years old at this time, I still had to be using a fake ID. I had been out since I was 15 years old. And I felt, in a certain way, I'd felt really excluded from the gay world that I wanted to be a part of. And I had to surreptitiously be a part of it to get, you know, I had this ridiculous phony ID that, I don't know how that thing worked. It was a 30-year-old named David Joseph Wiktorski. <laughs> I looked nothing like this man. And it this ID worked for me for like three years. But I had a lot of anger I was an angry teenager. I was, <laughs> I definitely had a lot of rage in me. And I felt this anger towards the gay community in a way, just being like, I'm out, I'm proud, I'm here, and yet I'm not part of this group. And so I carried that with me to a club like the Roxy, which still felt to me like this sort of like a gay crowd. It was like the epitome of like the Chelsea Queen. You know, at the time, I really did. I felt excluded there in a way. I didn't feel hot enough. I just didn't necessarily feel like I fit in. I hated the music. I hated, 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 hated the music. And really just looked down my nose at the place a little bit and was just very much on my high horse as a 20, 21-year-old. But I look back on it now and, you know, I do love the music and I became a big Peter Rohoffer fan. Having that space was so awesome. And, you know, the times that I felt like I wasn't having a good time there, I actually was. <laughs> like... This makes me think a lot about my own experiences. When I first moved here, I was working for the Black Party. I was doing the door at the mm, Black Party. Mm -hmm. And I remember being introduced to sort of like that culture, that music. And I remember similarly to you, I was like, what are people hearing? I just, this is noise. And now it's funny, all these years later, I can look back on it and be like, wow, I love this music so much. So I have a very similar experience. But I, I think it's a... It's the thing about growing up is that nostalgia creeps in, but also that, that older ear kind of listens to something and hears it entirely differently. Yes, absolutely. So what was your favorite memory of your time as a go-go boy? I was dancing in this place called Icy Guys, which was fit about 15 or 16 people. It was just tiny. It was on 6th Street between 1st and A and is now, I think, a bakery it's like a little tiny bakery when you walk past it. It's called Icy Guys. They could only serve beer and wine. There is like this really cute guy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
that basically just like worked there full time and they'd have dancers and I would dance there and it was just like tiny and could really turn into like a super fun, a fun party. And I would just drink loads of Gatorade and sweat and just like have just all this dirty cash and would just like change in the closet. I would just go and I remember it was so gross. I would go into the closet there. It was like the broom closet and just scoop out. It was like a dirty diaper. Like I would just scoop out just like just gross, like filthy wads of cash. And I would put it in a shoebox under my I would take it home, put it in a shoebox under my bed. <laughs> but, but my favorite memory was dancing and I had been taken to go see Kiki and Herb from my friend Tom Donaghy and was a, a fan of Justin Vivian Bond at the time and really looked up to her and I'll just never forget and I never met her. And I was dancing on the bar and Vivian Bond walked in looking like just fucking gorgeous, just like beautiful, like so glamorous. And she came in on the other side of the bar and she just saw me and smiled. And um, yeah, I think that's my favorite. <laughs> that's my favorite memory of of dancing. And I felt so excited and that connection with somebody that I sort of idolized it was just really thrilling to me. And Vivian Bond has gone on to become one of my great friends and collaborators. And, uh, and it's just someone who I, you know, love very, very much. But I think dan actually dancing itself, that was my favorite memory that I, when I think about it. I love that. And for those listening, Justin Vivian Bond will be on the podcast later this year. So audiences will be able to be introduced to her. But also in the meantime, check out her YouTube and Instagram where she has this persona that she's performing as currently called Anti Glam. And it's just fucking fabulous. Now, my darlings, the first thing we do when we make our gin daisy is we put ice. We put ice in this. Uh, oh, my dear. Somebody really closed the fuck out of this fucker. Oh, my heavens, darlings, I can't get it open. Well, maybe we won't be making a gin daisy. I've had quite a day, I have to say, my darlings. It's been a very annoying day for you, Auntie Glam. Oh, I want to kill. Ah, oh, there we go. You meet Scott Hoffman, a.k.a. Baby Daddy, and Anna Lynch, a.k.a. Animatronic, and you begin writing songs. What was the process like for you all as collaborators in the beginning? We were just having fun, and we enjoyed performing together, and we needed material. So we would get together and work on, you know, every time we had a performance, I definitely just wanted something new to play. I wanted to like bust out a new song. So so we could have pe we could invite people back and they weren't seeing the exact same set every time. There'd always be a new song to play. So I think that's how initially we were like we you know pumped out a bunch of material and then we made comfortably numb, which was an idea I had sort of I wanted to mix up the Bee Gees vocals. I could do this falsetto with a dance beat and sort of rewrite the Pink Floyd song. And then we just kept writing and got a little tiny record deal and put out a vinyl with Comfortably Numb as the B-side on it. And it sort of took off. And then I feel like the song started just getting better. And then I think when we ended up writing Take Your Mama, that's sort of when it felt like the songs were getting deeper. And we wrote Return to Oz. And the songs started having like a real, just like a deeper meaning behind them. Can I just mention my favorite Scissor Sister song just because we're talking about it? Um, Fire with Fire is like <laughs> just my ultimate, ultimate song. Because you're so speaking about lyrics like that, that are meaningful and like that song to me um, is so empowering. 
I'm so glad you like it. It's funny that you say that that's one song I would probably take back if I could. Why? I... I'm just, that's why I'm glad that you like it. it. Makes me happy when I hear people that like it because I don't as much. But oh my god, the way the beat kicks in, like halfway through the song on the second yeah. chorus. Mm. I really haven't heard it in a long, long time. I probably haven't heard that song in 10 years. So sometimes when I go back and, and hear stuff again for the first time, I feel differently about it. I'm like, oh, you know what? Actually, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Or, you know, I, I makes me feel better about it. So where did the name Jake Shears come from? Growing up, I was called Jake. So, you know, my family called me Shaky Jake. And then I was trying to, like, come up with, like, some sort of pun for, like, scissors or something. And I was like, oh, Jake Shears, that's real clever. But then, you know, the character from Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band is named Billy Shears, which is interesting. And then growing up, there was this lady, she was kind of like the wild booby comedy 80s USA trash movie host named Rhonda Shear who hosted USA Up All Night and she would show like edited TNA comedies that were just like really rotten and I'd stay up all night watching Rhonda Shear and she had like big blonde hair and she'd wear bikinis and she'd like come like at the commercial break and you know talk about the terrible movie you were watching and I loved her side note she's become this really crazy Republican (laughs) (laughs) of course if you loved someone in your childhood at this point and you haven't heard from them in multiple years (laughs) it's like chances are they've either become like a flat earther or republican or or some combination you're totally right but in a funny way i feel like if billy shears and Rhonda shear had a baby it would absolutely have been me in a weird way not that I'm comparing myself with the Beatles by any means, but I do like some music hall vibes and, you know, and a concept record. So, you know, so that's that's the origin story. So earlier you mentioned, you know, being a little bit of a wild child growing up. And when we spoke in 2018, you recalled listening to Frankie Goes to Hollywood's song Relax and recognizing a lasciviousness about the song. You called it, quote unquote, dirty in a good way. And I'm just curious about like your initial attraction to that song and sort of, you know, you mentioned when you were go-going and sort of like the pulling the money out and the, and the sweat of go-going. And I just feel like this is a through line through a lot of both your story and your work. What did you hear in that song and how did that sort of impact you? I think with Relax, it's just like there's this undeniable like it's a bacchanal. It's so decadent and dark. The album's called, and which I didn't know this at the time, but like, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And it sounds like a pleasure dome. The song sounds like it's happening inside a dome, you know? And there's pleasure happening, and there's there's also like, it feels like there's weird stuff going on over there too. Like, it's dangerous. You know, when Holly Johnson does his uh ahas, like, they sound, they just sound so menacing. I mean, it's very sinister. And that's one of the songs that I just remember really being a transformative song for me to just hearing when I was five years old. And, you know, I remember hearing it in the back of my mom's car. And that's an influence in my music that I will always have. stuff that plays with being menacing it's really important to me to have to have stuff that makes people feel good and also have stuff that makes people feel good but with like a side to it that is not quite right that's just a little bit darker it's just something i'll always play with and 
I'm really playing with the new stuff that I'm writing. Like there's definitely some just, you know, I like it cold a little bit sometimes. I like it a little icy and just kind of creepy. I feel like it's, yeah, something that's always sort of going to be with me. And also that Holly Johnson, I mean, it's just so undeniably queer. Just the thought of just like relax. Even at five years old, I knew that there was something a little dangerous about that, something different. That's so interesting to me because oftentimes I'll encounter things that are not implicitly queer. And yet, and that song is such a great example, when you just hear it and it's like, it's explicitly queer and you don't know why it's not necessarily a queer artist or it's not even speaking to queer people, but it just has a sensibility that's a little bit off that feels on for us. Yes, I love that. That's a great way to put it. So let's talk about your style. I know you don't consider yourself to be a style icon, but I do. I think that you had such an aesthetic all throughout your career. You you continue to, and I love how much you experimented with looks, L-E-W-K-S, looks. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about sort of like your original ideas around how you wanted your persona to look It's funny, at first, when we first started making music, I had this strange thing that was like, in the back of my head being like, you know what, I don't really think we should dress up because I think the music should speak for itself and it shouldn't be about like all this showbiz bullshit. (laughs) Like that lasted about two seconds (laughs) because I automatically realized just from, you know, performing, I needed to have something that indicated that sort of special elevation of performing on stage. I needed that special something to lift me up. And I began to discover that that show personship was just very vital in sort of what I was doing. It was just fun. It was just really, it was fun to like put on awesome stuff and, I, and it would inspire other people to put on awesome stuff. So it would inspire people at shows to also dress up. Everybody would put on, you know, looks and I still have to have, I find it really difficult. It's one of the hardest things about what I do is costumes. It's kind of the bane of my existence. I love wearing them. It's just hard to put it together, but I know what I like when I see it. I will find inspirations, but I have to credit all the people that I've worked with over the years to really, I've given people, I love giving people total leeway in what they do. I really believe in working with people that you just trust them. No matter what you do, being a singer or a performer, making music, you never do anything by yourself. And it's like, I'm a solo performer, singer now, and like I still work with so many people. And to me, it's super important to just really trust everybody and make them feel that trust and let people do what they do and do it well. And I've found over the years, it's really served me with costumes and clothes. I have a question for you from a mutual friend of ours. Mm. Hey, girl. Um, I miss you, and I can't wait to see you again when all this shenanigans is done with. My question, I guess, would be, what would 2020 self tell your 2004 self? And for those that don't know, that is Sammy Joe, who was previously the tour DJ for the Scissor Sisters. Pickles. (laughs) That's an interesting question. I mean, I look back at my 2004 self and I was so full of myself. (laughs) I was so absolutely, completely just full of it, full of myself, would say whatever the fuck I wanted, was kind of like a total dictator. I was bossy. (laughs) You know, I'm sure I could just be awful sometimes. Over time, I really had to kind of like deal with that. There was like, I remember... It's probably around like, I don't know, 2010, I really started having to like look inward and figure out how to be a more thoughtful person and a nicer person. And if I could go back and talk to my 2004 self, I would maybe ask my 2004 self to sort of focus a little bit more on those areas, if that makes any sense. I wouldn't have been such, I would have told myself not to be such a dick. (laughs) But do you ever think that maybe some of your success was 
because of that sort of knowing what you want and going after what you want and perhaps the delivery, maybe you can look back and say, oh, I wish I would have done it differently. But I'm just curious if you think you still would have had the success you had, had you not had that sort of hard edge approach. Maybe not. That's the other side of it too. I mean, I think in certain ways with what we were doing, who I was, I sort of had to have that blind confidence in myself and what we were doing. And I don't know if that's the right word, blind confidence, but God, I mean, I remember just like, I remember just yelling at people. <laughs> I, would throw I would yell at people, people that I loved and still every once in a while I'll yell at people, but like, not like that. I mean, I really had some moments where I look back and I'm like, my God, like I was really, I could get out of control. Is it easy to make you mad? My threshold's pretty high. <laughs> My threshold's pretty high, but when something crosses over the top of it, I like I go from zero to like to real housewives. So you were an openly gay musician in the 2000s. You weren't an anomaly, but figures like Ricky Martin, Jonathan Knight, and Lance Bass were all in the closet and for a reason. What was that like for you being out in that time and seeing so many other artists doing what you were doing, but living sort of this, I don't want to say double life necessarily, but keeping this secret from the public? I had a lot of anger about it. I was really angry about it. I was, <laughs> no, it's true. I had, I had some, I had some like, I had some rage about it. I had very little patience with it. I mean, I look back now and I don't necessarily agree with myself fully back then, but I did have this, like, I really felt like it was a responsibility. I felt like it was a responsibility. I felt like if you were going to be a performer, if you were going to do this, if you're going to be out there, if this is what you're deciding to do with your life, then you have the responsibility to be out and be visible for all the people growing up up and to make some kind of a change. Were there closeted celebrities that would ever hit on you? Mm, no, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, no, I, I wouldn't say hit on me, no. I mean, you know, Anderson and I kind of dated a little bit and we're really close and good friends and kind of have known each other for a long time now. And, you know, he wasn't out. To me, he had a past just because of what he did for a living at that moment in time. And his passion for journalism. I think from his point of view at the time, it was like my job, it's about getting information out to the public. And, but I don't know, that argument could be made for actors and singers too. I don't really feel the same way anymore because I feel like the pendulum swung in such another direction. Now I really value my privacy in a much bigger way than I used to and really do keep a sort of a lockdown on my private life. And, you know, I'll post stuff on Instagram and, you know, there is a public nature to what I do and sort of being out there, but I really am conscious about what I share with people because, you know, there's just a lot of stuff at this point. I feel like everybody's just spilled so much of their guts out there and, and whatnot, including myself, that I feel like there's a lot of things in my life that I'm just like, it's nobody's fucking business. I now feel differently in certain ways about sort of what people choose to share and not to share. Cause now it's just, now it's just a free for all. I think a lot about access and the celebrities that really like sort of captivate my attention most are often the ones that I know the least about who they are, that much of my love for them is sort of a figment of who I've built them to be in my head. Mm. And so sometimes when I see people I love posting, you know, stories at the grocery store or, or doing whatever, I'm kind of like, I don't want to know this aspect of you because I, I wanted you to, I didn't want you to be real. Mm -hmm. And, and you're making yourself seem just like me. And that like, that wasn't the point. I actually have like an averse response to that <laughs> because I'm like, you shouldn't be normal. But anyway, speaking of LGBTQ plus musicians that were out at a time when there weren't many Elton John, who I know is a close friend of yours, you were at his commitment ceremony because i know it was like 2004 and it was before gay marriage was legal they did the commitment ceremony with just elton's mom and then david's mom and dad and then they went on from that and had that giant wedding party so yeah i was there i imagine it's strange to grow close to someone that is that 
prolific. And I don't just mean, I mean, prolific in terms of music, prolific in terms of being an out uh, gay celebrity, prolific in just being a monumentally important human being. Yeah. I mean, so what was that like for you taking this person who I'm sure you knew who they were before you met them and sort of having them become someone who you actually knew as a human? He's someone that I'm in love with. I love him so much. Getting to become friends with him and getting to know him just at first, I mean, it's been 15 years now, if not more, was just totally falling in love. And I'd like to think the other way around too. He's a man with so much love in him. He's got so much love, he doesn't know what to do with it. Like He's one of the greatest people I've ever gotten to know. And I feel so fortunate. And still to this day, you know, sometimes I just can't believe it. I've gotten to see him play now. It must be I don't know. I must have seen him a hundred times. And like, it always, it always blows my mind. And just to sit there and, and see him do what he does, it still just never ceases to just totally blow me away. God, I love him so much. The day before I was flying to LA was when everything kind of got shut down. I was going to LA to basically write the last portion of our musical together. We were so excited about going into the studio and, and getting to make music. We have so much fun doing that. We've done it a lot over the years and it's just a joyful time for us to hole up for days and just be silly and write songs. And Okay, wait, a <laughs> goddamn minute. Wait, so... You two are writing a musical together. Yes. Please tell me more. I don't know how I didn't know about this. My head's exploding. We've written a musical about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and the rise and fall of PTL and of their empire and Heritage USA and basically her as a person. And it's a, it's a show about her. I think she's an amazing person. And I really think that this show does her a beautiful justice. And she was in a world with a lot of... <sighs> just a lot of bad, bad people. It's a tough show in certain ways, just because, but I mean, you've got Jerry Falwell who makes a great villain. <laughs> but yeah, the music is so good. And we were just so excited about going and doing the next the next phase of it. So, so I'm assuming yeah. when, when things reopen though, we could keep our eye on the whereabouts of where this project will go. Oh yeah. And, and so at this point though, right now, we can't hear any of the music, it's all on lock. Uh, yeah, you can't hear any music, no. <laughs> But James Graham is uh, writing, is written the book and who's a brilliant playwright. And yeah, it's just a super, it's an exciting project. And we've been working on it for a long time. The thing about musicals that makes me crazy is they just take a long time. The when they're right, they're right. It's just like the most archaic art form. There's no shortcuts. It's not like you can't like digitally edit a a musical. They take the time that they take. But I'm really excited about it. And Elton has certainly proven himself to be a tremendous uh, asset to the Broadway world. I was recently re-listening to the Aida soundtrack. And first of all, I was like, I cannot believe that that show has not been revived or turned into a movie, but he is just a terrific musical theater songwriter. And it's yes. not always the same skill set that goes into writing great pop music that does musical theater. Some people transition well, some people do not. Elton transitions well. Absolutely, the ultimate, like as far as that, that transition. Now I hear that you had a scene in Rocket Man, which was the Elton John biopic that was cut from the film. If you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're comfortable talking about it. Sure, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to talk about it for a long time. I waited until Taryn won the Golden Globe and then I was like, okay, I can finally come out with this. I just did not want anyone to like know at the time when the movie was out. I was super happy that the movie turned out the way that it did and so happy for Elton and David and they put so much work into this and Taryn and Dexter Fletcher the director yeah I got to be basically where I was like for two weeks working in costumes we, I, this big number all this choreography there's a whole we, I, I sang Benny and the Jets uh, and there's this big club scene and I wore this huge ball gown and this giant feather headdress Vegas style you know high faggotry and it was just it was so fun I know there's a cut with me doing the song I've still never I can't really watch myself I've never asked to see it. Someday it's going to be really fun to look at it, I think. You know, I had a great time doing it. And when poor David Furnish is the one who had to call me, who's, you know, one of my oldest friends. And God bless him. What a horrible call to have had to make. I was so sad. But I was, you know, I said to him, I'm like, I know that this is not easy to tell me. And... I let myself be sad for 24 hours. I said for the next 24 hours, because I was so excited about it. I said for the next 24 hours, I am just going to like not get out of bed and just be really, really bummed out. And after that, I was fine. I just, sometimes you just got to have a limit to your grief. 
I want to ask about one other friend of yours. I know you and Kelly Ripa are really, really close. And I love following you two when you interact with each other on social media. Mm. And I feel like you know a side of Kelly that you just know she's a faggot. I really do believe <laughs> Kelly Ripa is a faggot. She she really, she actually is. Yeah. And so <laughs> being that you know her as well as you do, can you sort of talk about the Kelly Ripa that maybe like the morning show uh, audience doesn't get to see? She's just maybe the funniest person I know. She and her husband are two of the funniest people I know. They are just hilarious. They just, there's so much fun. They're two of my favorite people to hang out with. The whole family There's some of my favorite people to hang out with. She just makes me laugh and she makes me feel super supported. They both do. They're very, very supportive. And they're kind, kind, very, very, very funny people. You know, raunchy. They, we, not you, but, but you know, we just like, we just will like, we'll laugh about anything and just we'll talk about, we will talk about anything. And yeah, they're just, what else could I say about, about, about Kelly? Well, about, I have a question because you vacationed with them and oh, I yeah. believe you've been on some of these like mega vacations, the ones that include, have you been on any of the Barry Diller ones? Oh, I don't, I've never been on Barry Diller's boat. No, they've taken me to... Caribbean and to Greece and Telluride and we have a lot of fun on vacation. Here's the other thing I'm going to say about them. Is it like, like you can hang out with them for like two weeks and just have, they're so fun. They love to hang. They love to sit around and talk and hang and watch movies, watch TV, gossip. Like they're just, and they're always down to hang. And uh, Mark to me is like a brother and he's he's very mean to me. He makes fun of me all the time and I love it so much. Like there's no quicker way to my heart than really making fun of me <laughs> and knowing how to do it. But I, I'm crazy about them. So couple last questions. I wanna end our time together by talking about sex. There's a fabulous, fabulous 2004 feature in an issue of Butt Magazine in which the magazine tracked down some of your old lovers and asked them questions about you. It's explicitly wild. I recommend everyone Google it. I've just never seen, I have seen some stuff like that, but not in a long time. In response to the question, did you make love or have sex? One former lover said, quote, we both had sex and made love. That's the thing about Jason. He is the perfect combination of passionate affection and raunchy sleaze. He kisses passionately like a girl in love, but moans like a whore. I do. I'm loud. I am loud, 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 loud. <laughs> Cut to 2019, 15 years later. Troy Savon is asked by a reporter whether he's a top or a bottom. Savon declined to answer and later tweeted that the question was invasive, strange, and inappropriate. And this really bummed me out. In rereading that butt article, yeah, I was yeah, I was yeah, thinking, yeah. God, no gay musician that I can think of today would allow a magazine to talk to their former lovers and ask explicit <laughs> questions about their sex life. And you not only allowed it, you allowed them to talk to many partners, all of whom were very graphic in their depictions about their experiences <laughs> having sex with you. It's fabulous, <laughs> but it just doesn't exist anymore because it would be deemed, as Troy Savon said, it would be deemed invasive, strange, potentially inappropriate. I'm just curious what you make of that sort of shift in terms of, I, I feel like so often we think of uh, the gay community as being so sexually liberated. Yeah. But in moments like that, I'm like, what the fuck? Like we can't even ask a musician today whether he's a top or bottom because that's seen as inappropriate when, you know, 15 years ago, it was kind of like, let's talk about how hard Jason's cock got. Yeah. <laughs> And they did. And they did. You do have to censor yourself way more these days because things do just get like magnified out into the, you know, there was a time where, you know, you would say something to a magazine. It was like outrageous. Like, you know, Del Marquis the other day just posted all this old sister sister stuff and all these pull quotes from old enemies and stuff. And like, I said some crazy shit. <laughs> I said some wild, wild stuff. And I was just saying to my boyfriend yesterday, I was like, I'm so glad that like, there was a time at least where you could sort of, you know, you could just say real provocative, 
you could say provocative things. It's interesting though, because I feel like as you're pointing out, there was a time in which you'd say stuff like that. And yeah. in a magazine like Butt Magazine that was distributed to a really specific audience who was plugged into that sort of discourse. And now yes. if you were to say something like that to a magazine, that pull quote would be taken and would run on like a Daily Mail or another website whose demographic is completely the kind of audience who's not keen to discuss those sorts of conversations. Yes. And yeah, and so I feel like there was way more of a containment in terms of keeping conversations to the people who wanted to hear them most in a way that now it's like, you say something, it gets pulled out, and it just my the spin mom, I mean, When this gets posted, my mom is probably going to literally have to see that. <laughs> you know? My mom will be like, Google News is going to be on my mom's email, and she's literally going to have to like see that quote from me which you know like whatever like I, who cares but that's why you know what I mean <laughs> that's why like and you know uh, I've had several really really prominent gay celebrities who I'm friends with that don't want to appear on this show because and it's not not that they don't want to it's that they fear that by asking certain questions of them that they understand I want to ask, they know that it would be pull quoted and that it would not stay contained to just my listener base and our listener yeah. base. Yeah. And I don't hold it against them because I understand. And it's a bummer, but it's like, I understand the world in which the second they comment on certain things, it grows and becomes a much bigger conversation than they intended. And, and also like the person you're talking about ends up sometimes reading about it, then responding publicly. And it's, it's like, it just gets messy. Yes. I want to thank you so very much. It's yeah, uh, You're the first rock star that we've had on the show, which is such an incredible honor. That's very sweet of you. It's very sweet of you. When I'm not, when I'm not screaming at people in bars, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, you're, you're very sweet. That's very sweet of you to say. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, thanks again. If you want even more of this week's interview with Jake Shears, check out this week's Patreon, in which Jake discusses his experience as the unicorn on the UK version of The Masked Singer. That's right, the unicorn. Uh, he gets into his plans of what he was going to perform before he was uh, kicked off the show. I had so much fun. I was devastated when I got unmasked. I was actually devastated. I was really... Yeah, the next day I was going to do Copacabana and David Bowie Heroes. Like, I was so excited. So if you want even more of that, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash shutupevan for extended interviews with all of our week's guests and additional bonus content as well. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced by Alden Peters with additional editing by Ryan Killian Kraus. We just want to take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.